Lucy barged in and demanded of Linus to change the television channel. Linus looked at her and said, Why are you coming in trying to boss me around? What gives you the right to do this? She looked at him and said, These five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want? Linus replied. As he was leaving the room, he looked at his hand and said, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> this morning, I want to speak to you about how God has organized his church. The text is Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 to 16. Today we continue in our sermon series on this great book, sermon series simply entitled It's by Grace. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll begin at verse 1, read through verse 16. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been describing our identity in Christ. Beginning here in chapter 4 and going through the remainder of the letter into chapter 6, he will describe our activity in Christ. If you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. Our identity always precedes our activity. What we do does not determine who we are. 
But who we are always determines what we do. Our identity precedes our activity. If I were to ask you, who are you? You may say, well, I'm a salesman. I'm a school teacher. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a doctor. I'm a nurse. I'm a lawyer. I'm a swimmer. I'm a singer. I'm a musician. I'm a football player. I'm someone who just likes to help other people. All of those answers do not tell me your identity, but they tell me your activity. I am fundamentally not known in my identity as a preacher. My identity is that I am a Christian. I am in Christ. I just happen to be a Christian who preaches. And if one day God were to take preaching away from me, my identity would not be lost. Because my identity is in Christ. My identity always precedes my activity. What I do does not determine who I am, but who I am always determines what I do. If you and I get this backwards, if we get the cart before the horse, if we somehow think that what we do determines who we are, then we will inevitably spend all of our lives trying to earn, maintain, upgrade our salvation right standing before the Lord. Because you are justified. You are saved. Not because of your activity, but because of your identity. Paul does a masterful job of this all throughout his New Testament letters. The first portion he usually spends talking about our identity in Christ. And then flowing out of that, he spends the second half of the letter speaking about our activity in Christ. Our activity that is defined because of our identity in the Lord. Ephesians is a great example of this because he splits the letter in the middle. The first three chapters are about our identity in Christ. The second three chapters are about our activity in Christ. Now, Paul says, uh, we have been chosen before the very foundation of the world. That's our identity. He says that we were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. That's our identity. That God has raised us. He has seated us in the heavenly places. That's our identity. That God has drawn us near to himself through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is our identity. This is who we are. And in light of who we are, there are certain things that we do. So beginning in chapter 4, he describes our activity in Christ. This morning, I want to give you three words that describe our passage. This is how God has organized his church. The first word is grace. It's used and described in verses 1 to 6. The second word is gift. This word is described for us in verses 7 to 11. The third word is growth. And this is what God describes beginning in verse 12 through verse 16 of our passage. Paul begins, I urge you, I plead with you, that by grace you live the life worthy of the calling. Because you've been called, 
There's a certain way in which you live. Now, don't get this backwards. It's not that if you live a right way, you'll be in right standing with God. No, no, that's getting the cart before the horse. Because you're in right standing, then there's a certain right way that you live. And so he spent three chapters talking about this is who we are in right standing with God. And in light of that, I urge you, Paul says, I plead with you to live a life worthy of the calling. If you've ever asked yourself, what does that life look like? What does the worthy life look like? He gives five adjectives in the first six verses. I urge you, he says, be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Be loving. Be united. Those five words are five adjectives that he uses to describe not only individuals, but also the entire collective faith family. I urge you to be completely humble. The word humble means to regard oneself in lowliness. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride is described in the Bible as seeing yourself more elevated than you really are. To regard yourself more highly than you ought. It's ironic, isn't it, that the very first sin ever committed was committed because of pride, arrogance. It was Lucifer that created angel of the Lord who wanted to exalt himself over God. And God kicked him out of heaven. Not only did he kick the devil out, but all of the demonic cronies. Jesus said, I saw, the, I saw Lucifer fall from the heavens. Not only is pride the reason for the first sin ever committed, but it's also the reason for the first human sin ever committed. Adam and Eve created in the Garden of Eden. The Lord gives them tremendous freedom. You may eat from any tree in the garden except this one in the middle of the garden. And Adam and Eve wanted to be equal with God. They wanted to be like God. It can also be translated, they wanted to be God. Out of pride, out of arrogance, they wanted to be equal with God. And so they saw that the fruit was desirable. And so Eve took it first and she ate and then she gave it to her husband who was with her, right beside her. It's amazing how pride can slither its way into our lives, isn't it? We can be so overwhelmed and overcome by pride over just about anything. We can have unhealthy, unbiblical pride when it comes to our accomplishments or our abilities. When it comes to our possessions, our things, our facilities. We can become overwhelmingly proud of our pedigree, of our job, of our education, of our children, of our grandchildren, even of our spiritual depth. We can become proud of just about anything. There is a good dose of pride in the Bible. I mean, we are to have a, a healthy pride. We have a good work ethic because at some level we're proud of the product that we produce. We, we have some level of pride because we want to take care of the blessings that God has given to us. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes good pride can become bad pride, unhealthy, unbiblical, in fact, for when we begin to regard ourselves more highly than we ought. 
Oh, yes, my friends, pride can slither in. And sometimes you may be the last one to know it. I may be the last one to know it. Other people may see it in our lives, but we don't necessarily see it in ourselves. Sometimes pride is the very last thing that we ever see in the mirror. I know I've only been your pastor for two years. But will you allow me to speak truth this morning? I have seen and I have sensed unhealthy pride in the body of Christ here in this congregation. I've heard it in more conversations than I really want to recount. I've seen it on display in various ways, in various places, too many for me to enumerate right now. I've seen pride. I've sensed pride in leadership and laity of this congregation. Now, before you get defensive, before you get sarcastic and cynical, before something wells up inside of you, let me just tell you, I preach to us, not just you. What God has told you this morning, he told me earlier this week. This is something that I think all of us deal with. The, the true, genuine believer of the Lord says, okay, I'll take that word. I hear that. So, Lord, by your spirit, will you reveal those areas in which I am proud, in which I allow pride to slither in, because it is rampant in the body of Christ here. This much I do know. I know that when revival comes, pride is broken. I'm not talking about revival meetings. I'm not talking about just attending a few services on the calendar. I'm talking about when revival comes, when God breaks in, when God invades, when God comes in, when we allow him to have free reign over every area of our life and allow him to be in the first chair of priority of our life, when we allow that to happen, pride is always broken. When revival comes, pride is broken. We would do well to remember the words of John MacArthur. John MacArthur once wrote, Pride is always to be sought, but rarely is it ever claimed. That's the person who says, I, uh, he says, humility is always sought, but rarely claimed. It's the person who says, I'm humble. If you don't believe me, just ask me. And I'm very proud of how humble I am. John MacArthur's right. Humility is something that ought to be sought after, but rarely is it claimed. The moment you think you got it, it just has slipped out of your grasp. He also went on to write, it's good for us to remember that everything we bring before the Lord condemns us. And nothing we bring before the Lord commends us. That keeps it in perspective, don't you think? Everything that we bring before God condemns us in our proud sinfulness. And nothing that we bring before the Lord actually commends us as worthy. This is why Paul says the most fundamental of Christian virtues is this issue of humility. It's the opposite of pride. And so he says, let us be completely humble. He also says to be gentle. Elsewhere, the word translated as gentle is translated as meek. 
Meekness is always portrayed as power under control. The word images behind the word meekness or gentleness is a tamed animal, soothing wind, helpful medicine. All those images are images of power under control. For if you have a horse that is not tamed, it is a beast of burden that can wreak havoc. If you have wind that's out of control, you and I call it a tornado, and it can cause destruction. If medicine is administered out of control, it can result in death. So gentleness is power under control. Uh, Paul says, because of who we are in Christ, we are completely humble, the opposite of pride. And because of who we are in Christ, we also are individuals of great gentleness and meekness. We are power, but it's under the control of Christ. The hinge in this list of five is patience. I think he does this on purpose. He says that, my life, your life, the life in Christ, the, the life of, of the one worthy of the calling is one who demonstrates patience. Patience is translated as long-suffering. The opposite of long-suffering is short-tempered. So if you evaluate your life and you are frequently losing it, if you're frequently going off on somebody, that's probably a demonstration that you don't have the hinge of patience. He says not only that, but also bearing with each other in love. That, that phrase is cumbersome, isn't it? Bearing with each other in love. It's, bear, it's cumbersome. It's difficult. Bearing with each other. This is not Cupid. This is not romance. This is not butterflies in your stomach. This is bearing with each other in love. This is a description of agape love. The love that has been showered upon you, you must show unto others. It's a love that's undeserved, unending, unmerited, unconditional. Now, we like to receive that love, but it's a different thing when we have to show that love. We say, oh, God, please give me some more of your agape love. I love that. And the Lord says, okay, I'll give it to you, but you must know you've got to show it to your spouse, to your children, to your coworkers, to your classmates, to other people in your church. You've got to show this love. You go, whoa, but they don't deserve it. And God says, I know you don't either. It's, it's a love that God gives to us. It's a love that we are to show. Unto other. We bear with each other in love. It's not always easy to love each other. It's not always easy to like each other. But because of our status in Christ, this is how we live. Because our identity precedes our activity. And because of our identity, then we long to bear with each other in love. He also describes us as being united. Make every effort to keep the unity. To who are we united? Well, primarily, initially, it's not one another. Paul is not calling us to be united to each other. If you read the text, he's calling us to be united to the Trinitarian God of the universe. He's saying that our unity, first and foremost, is that we're united to God. As individuals, we're united to God. And as a faith family, united to God. Now, inevitably, if we're all united to God, we will be united to each other. But primarily, your focus and my focus is for us to be united with the Lord. This is why in verses 4, 5, and 6, on seven occasions, he uses the word one. He's speaking of the oneness that we have with God. So there's one body. 
There's one spirit, there's one faith, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all over all. The number seven is the number of completion. And so he tells us to keep the unity. He does not say make unity. Because there's no way that you and I can make unity with each other or with ourselves and God. Remember our identity. We were enemies of God. We were dead in our sins. If it wasn't because of God, we would not be united with him. But because of what God has done in Christ Jesus, we are perfectly and forever united with God. So what does Paul say? Paul says because of what God has done for us, he has made us united with him. We need to keep that unity. And if we keep that unity with God, inevitably, we will keep the unity one with the other. For if you have a thousand pianos, and they're all tuned with the same tuning fork, inevitably they are tuned to each other. If you have a thousand people, and they're all tuned to the same God, inevitably they will be tuned to each other. So in verse 4, he speaks of the Spirit. In verse 5, he speaks of the Lord, Jesus Christ. In verse 6, he speaks of God the Father. Who are we united to? First and foremost, we must pledge ourselves to be united to the Trinitarian God of the universe. And then, as we do this, as individuals, inevitably, we will be united one with the other. Paul says, by grace, we live the life worthy of the calling. Can I make another bold statement this morning? Can I tell you that if you do not have a desire to live this life as described in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, if you don't have a desire to live this life worthy of the calling, then you, my friend, are lost and going to hell. Are you listening to me? If you are a person not desiring to live this life, worthy life then you are lost and going to hell and today I plead with you to trust Jesus Christ as Savior Paul says you you can't play around with this this is serious stuff now you don't live this way in order to be declared right with God no your identity is already right with God because of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ in light of that if that's really got you if that's really grasped you if that really overwhelms you then inevitably you will long to live this gracious worthy life that God has called us to how has God organized his church he's organized organized us as individuals who long to live the worthy life. Second, is the word gifts. It's found in verses 7 to 11. But each one of us has been given grace. The word is really grace gift. Each one of us has been given a grace gift by Christ as apportioned unto him. Our God is a God who's a giver, not a taker. This is one of the things that distinguishes him from every other deity in the world. Our God is a giver, not a taker. You see this at the heart of who God is for the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Our God is a giver. 
He, he is a giver of gifts. Now, what Paul does is he quotes a, a victory psalm of Psalm 68. And he says that he ascended and he led a train of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's talking about King David in Psalm 68. David is a victorious warrior. He comes back from the battlefield to the victor go the spoils. And so as it was their custom, there was always a victory parade. And at the front of the line, there were all of the, um, uh, all of the uh, spoils, all of the uh, gifts that were uh, confiscated and taken from the enemy. And David would have led the procession up. He would have ascended the holy mount. He would have given some of those gifts to God. Also in that victory parade, there would have been some Israelite soldiers who were once held captive that David would have rescued and then also behind them there would have been enemy soldiers that were now declared prisoners of war and this victory parade would go through the streets of Jerusalem the people would line the streets they would celebrate hoop and holler and David would go and first he would give gifts unto God and then as king he would turn around and give gifts to other people and Paul is what he's describing is that Jesus has the authority to give spiritual gifts because Jesus is of the line and lineage of David. He, he is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And certainly, Jesus has ascended. He did not uh, ascend necessarily the temple mount, but he ascended into the heavens. And then he gives a parenthetical statement that he who ascended, it must also mean that he descended. Now, what does he mean by that? In the descension of Jesus is the incarnation, that God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He wrapped flesh around himself, and Jesus came as the one and only Son of God. He descended to the earthly regions. He lived among people. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and for mine. And by that declaration, he is defeating sin and death, hell, and the grave on the third day Jesus got up he ascended he rose from the dead and then you and I know he physically literally uh, ascended into the heavens Paul is saying this Jesus is worthy because he's the king of all kings and lord of all lords and he has the right privilege and authority to give spiritual gifts because of Psalm 68 because of this victory that we have in God Jesus is our king he descended, and he who descended also ascended. And by his actions, by his work, by his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has the right to give gifts, to give grace gifts. You and I call them spiritual gifts. Here in our passage, four of them are identified. Um, he says to some, he gave uh, Apostles to some prophets to some evangelists to some pastor teachers. These are various gifts that Jesus has given to individuals in his church. There are four places where spiritual gifts are mentioned in the New Testament. We find it mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, here in Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. In those four places, I don't think any of those lists are exhaustive. I don't even think that if you combined all the lists together and you would get about 19 or 20 spiritual gifts, depending on how you count them. But even if you got compiled that list of 19 to 20 spiritual gifts, I don't even think that is exhaustive. So what is a spiritual gift? Well, a spiritual gift, a simple definition can be this. That a spiritual gift is a manifestation of the grace of God given to each believer by Christ for the glory of God and the common good of the church. 
That's a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a manifestation of grace given to every believer by Christ for the, com- for the glory of God and the common good of the church. Now, if you look at the 19 or 20 spiritual uh, gifts that are listed in the New Testament, uh, you'll find things like administration and leadership and teaching and preaching and uh, speaking in tongues and mercy and helps, all types of different gifts. But nowhere in any of those lists will you find running a sound system or working in a nursery. You won't find any of it. But both of those things are examples of skill that must be surrendered to the Savior, right? And so when you begin to think about uh, what is my spiritual gift, you got to ask yourself the question, how has God wired me? What do I like to do? What gets me up in the morning? What have other people said that I'm pretty good at? You begin to answer those questions that kind of reveals how God has shaped you, how he's passioned you. If you are in Christ, then you're a recipient of a gift, talent, ability that you can surrender to the Savior. The person who says, oh, I don't have a spiritual gift. Listen, I know why you say that. You say that um, because of humility, but it's false humility. And actually, it's offensive to Christ. When the believer says, oh, I don't have a spiritual gift, what you're saying is, Jesus has neglected me. And clearly in Ephesians 4, each one of us has been given a gift as he apportioned it. So the person who's in Christ, a person who's identified in the Lord, cannot say, I don't have a spiritual gift. I know we say it because we don't want to be proud, we don't want to be boastful, we want to be humble, but that act of false humility is an offense to Christ. What you're saying is that Christ has overlooked you, Christ has neglected you, and nothing could be further from the biblical truth. Each one has been given a gift, a skill, an ability. So you just have to decipher that and just listen. What do other people say that you're pretty good at? How? What do you like to do? What skill do you have that you can surrender unto the Lord? Maybe you're a dentist. Maybe you're a graphic designer. Um, Maybe you have this hobby, this skill, this ability. Your spiritual gift is a manifestation of the grace of God given to every believer by Christ for the glory of God, for the good of the church. So all of us have something to do. The person who says, well, if, if, if I don't do it, somebody else will. No, they won't. Because they can't do it as well as you can do it. Once again, that's not arrogance. That's just biblical. Because God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. He's, he's created you to do certain things. So if you say, ah, I won't do it. Or you say, ah, I can't do it. Yes, you can. If God, by his spirit, has enabled you to do it, then woe to you if you don't do it. We need you to do it as a faith family. We, we need you. We, if nobody can do what you've been created to do better than you. Nobody can do what you've been created to do better than you can do it. I mean, there may be other people who can teach, but they can't teach like you because you've been created to do that. There may be other people who can uh, have a, a ministry of helps or mercy, but They can't do it the way you do it because you've been created to do it. So God loves you so much that he has gifted you. He has the authority to do it. He's a victorious king. So 
God has something for you to do. What is it? People say, well, I don't know if my gift is all that important. Can I just tell you that it is important? The Apostle Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Every gift is equally important. I mean, the head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. I mean, if the nose says to the eye, I don't need you, where would the sense of sight be, Paul writes? Everybody is needed. We all have a task to do. This is how God has organized his church. He, he's declared us innocent in God's sight. He's given us a, a worthy calling, a life to live. He's given us a gift to utilize. The person who says, well, I don't know if my gift is all that important. I don't know if my gift is as important as your gift or your gift is more important than my gift. That argument is pretty ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as having this argument. I wonder which wing of the plane is most important, the left or the right. I don't know. Cut one of them off and see what happens. Right? I mean, it really doesn't matter. You cut the, you think, well, the left one is far more important. Well, then cut the right one off and see what happens. You think some people's jobs and ministries and tasks are less important? Just lop them off and see what happens to the faith family. We will spiral down to destruction quicker than an airplane. Because God has gifted his church. This is how he's organized us. Let me also say this, that how you're gifted, how you're shaped, how you're wired, you, you need to do those things. You, you're most, um, you, you rejoice the most and you glorify God the most when you're doing the things that he's created you to do. Um, but don't let that, even that, limit you. Sometimes ministry is done not because of giftedness, but because of need. Sometimes a need puts you outside of your most comfortable giftedness. Let me give you a few examples. If somebody came up to you today and they said, you know, I really need you to pray for me. Your response should not be, oh, I don't do that. Uh, I, I don't have the gift of mercy. I, I really don't. I don't have the gift of mercy. But I'll try to find you somebody who has the gift of mercy and he or she can really pray for you. And they'll give you a whopper. I mean, they'll give you a great one. So let's just find somebody uh, who has the gift of mercy. No, if somebody comes up to you Maybe you don't have the gift of mercy. But if a brother or sister is in need of prayer, you stop whatever you're doing right now and you pray for them. Yesterday, I told you 75 of us were here and we were working and, and Beth pulls up with all these flowers. And as she pulls by, uh, do you need anything? And she says, yeah, I need some people to help me carry in the flowers. The worst thing I could have said would be, boy, I just don't have the gift of helps. But I'll find you somebody who does. <laughs> right? No, I mean, people said, hey, there's a need. Because oftentimes ministry is need-based, not gifted-based. You may come across somebody who needs a word of encouragement today. The worst thing you can do is think to yourself, boy, I wish I had the gift of encouragement. I've got the gift of negative energy. I can't, I can't really lift them up, but I sure can't tear them down. <laughs> you may not have the gift of encouragement, but do you know how far a kind word and a smile will go to your brother and sister in Christ? You do realize uh, the number one class of prescriptions that are given in America today are antidepressants. Huh. 
I wonder if the church was the church. I wonder if there'd be any pharmaceutical companies that would go out of business. Because we would just be who we're supposed to be. And, and maybe we would encourage. And I'm not trying to oversimplify things. But I'm just saying, hey, God has gifted his body. And he's gifted it in a certain way. And he, and he wants you to be. You hear me say all the time, it's not by accident that you've come. I believe that from the bottom of my soul. I believe that it's not by accident that you're here. God has called you on purpose and for a purpose. It's not only that you need the church, but the church also needs you. Because together, we can do far more for the kingdom than we could ever do apart. Have y'all heard that? You've heard it about 401 times over the last two years. Because that's what we try to say to every person that comes. Because I believe it. It's straight out of Ephesians chapter 4. The first word is grace. The second word is gift. The third word is growth. God has given us these gifts so that we will do acts of service. So that we will grow in Christ. Church growth is not so much about additions as it is maturity. Now, we, we celebrate additions. We celebrate people coming to the church. That's a good thing. It's a measurable thing. But the true, the true measurement of church growth is not additions. The true measurement of church growth is maturity. There are a lot of church growth gurus who have crafted a program where they will uh, promise church growth, significant church growth, if you do these steps. I'm not belittling that. Maybe it happens. But God has already put together a program that seems pretty solid to me. I mean, the program that he's put together is, this is who you are in Christ. And because of your identity, then you do certain activity. And the first and foremost activity is that uh, you live a life worthy of the calling. And then you recognize your spiritual giftedness and you utilize it. And by utilizing it, then you will grow in Christ. That's a pretty good program. I think it has some longevity. I, I, think it, I think it probably works. And God says, this is how I've organized my church. This is church growth. Now, Paul does a beautiful thing. He does this numerous times in his letters. He begins to layer analogy on top of analogy. When he's talking about growth, he, he mentions uh, to be built up. To be built up, unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, um, to be mature in the fullness of Christ, to be built up. That word built up is a construction term. It, it literally means to build up a house. How do you build up your faith? By learning and obedience. That's how you build up your faith. I've told you before, a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. You want to build up your faith? You want to grow in Christ? Learn and obey what you've learned. If you don't apply the truth that God has given you, do not think for one second that God will give you more truth. Learn and obey, built up. And he also gives the analogy of, of being a sturdy ship, not tossed around by the waves of false doctrine. How do, how do you become sturdy? Being anchored in the very word of God. He speaks of, of an infant, uh, not remaining as an infant, but growing because children, they, they don't say small, they, they grow. And so you, in Christ, you are supposed to grow. Then he gives his most famous analogy. Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. That's an interesting concept because it's nowhere really taught in the Old Testament. I mean, if he had said a vineyard, we could go back. If he said the people of God, we could go back to the Old Testament. If he talked about sheep, we could go back to the Old Testament. But he speaks about the body. Where did he get this? Where did he get this idea that the church is the body of Christ? 
And some very spiritual people in the crowd will say, God. God told him, okay, I get that. Yeah, he got it from God. But what instrument did God use to bring this to Paul's mind? I think that maybe it was in conversations he had with Luke. Luke was a doctor by trade. He traveled with Paul on, uh, frequently. Every doctor I've ever met has been enamored with the body. Oh, how the body works and what it does and what it can't do and how you fix it when it's broken and sick and all those kind of things. I'm sure Luke was probably just as enamored with the body. They probably had a lot of conversations about the functioning of the body. And Paul said, ha ha, that is a great picture of the church. We are the body of Christ. Many parts united as one. And we're all connected to the head. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. We are connected to the head. Every part of the body equally connected to the head. So that right now, I know that my right big toe is connected to my head. The reason I know that is because I'm wiggling it right now. And some of y'all are looking at my right foot, right? And I don't know how my right toe is wiggling other than the fact that my brain told my right toe to wiggle. I don't think my brain necessarily uh, talked to my right arm who then talked to my right leg, my right kneecap, my right ankle, my right foot, and then went out to my right big toe. I think that somehow my right big toe is connected infinitely to my brain. And this is the imagery that Paul has, that all of us, regardless of where we are in the anatomy of Christ, regardless of where we are in the body of Christ, we are all equally connected to the head, the Lord Jesus. And that's how we have our vision. That's how we have our direction. That's how we have our marching orders. This is the analogy that Paul gives. I realize that we live in a consumer culture. That consumer culture says that, that we are to try to get the most by giving the least. I get that model. I understand that. That's a pretty good business model, right? You get the most by giving the least. It's called profit, right? I mean, I understand that in a business. The problem is when that model, that mentality invades the church. And we have individuals in the church that just might have that same business model when they come in here. And they say, how can I get the most out of this thing with giving the least? Giving the least of my time, my energy, my effort, my resources. How can I get the most out of this thing called the church? And while that model has its place in the business world, it's a catastrophe in the church. The church is, is more like a family model than a business model. I mean, moms, can I speak to you just a second? What mom in the crowd would take that business model to parenting her children? Well, I'm going to try to get the most out of my children with giving them the least. I don't know any mom that would do that. Most moms go out of their way to give as much as they possibly can to their children, even above and beyond what they need, right? Because our ministry is not a business model. It's more like a family model. We, we give to each other. We, we serve each other. This is how God organized this unit. So today, let me ask you, are you in Christ? Are you identified in him? If not, today can be the day of your salvation. If you are identified in Christ, then by grace, are you walking and living the worthy life? Do you know your gift and are you utilizing it for the glory of God and the good of others? Are you growing in Christ? If not, you can. How does God organize this thing called the church? Individually, we're not that much. But when you put us together like this into a single unit, 
we become a weapon against the adversary that's terrible to behold. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord, I thank you for your church. Lord, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Lord Jesus, I also ask that for those of us who maybe are struggling with pride, those of us who are just uh, not knowing our spiritual gifts, not utilizing them, Lord, I pray that you will move and have your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.